We certainly live in a politically charged era, do we not? Uh, It seems that just about every single day includes reports about new political scandal or upheaval. And, And apart from any particular policy of any specific figure, what, what is a more and more common response that you hear to our politicians from, from the public, not in the news necessarily? And you usually would hear your friends say something like, I hate that person. Because gone are the days when we were allowed to like and respect a person and vigorously disagree with the things that they say or things they believe. No, now, today, a rejection of an idea seems also to entail hatred of the person who has that idea. And what we may or may not be surprised to see in our text is that's not really a new phenomenon. More importantly, the human tendency towards vitriolic rejection of the messenger who had a message we don't like actually reveals the heart issue of rebellion. When when we attack the person instead of dismissing the idea, it shows it's not so much that we have a good reason to reject the idea so much as we hate the notion of their authority. And of course that intensifies when it comes to the word of God. So before we we dive into the specifics of this text, let's catch up. We're in a series on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and the apostle Paul wrote this letter, 1st Thessalonians to a church under oppression. And he drew on the themes, the reoccurring themes of imitating a godly example, the doctrine of election, and the return of Christ, and using them to give hope to a struggling Christian community. And so the running theme of this letter is hope. And do you remember the ways from this letter already that that Paul has tried to instill hope? What we saw in chapter 1 that he encouraged the Thessalonians that he could be clear evidence of their election, that they were God's chosen people as they endured in faith and the pursuit of godliness during trial. And then in the first part of of chapter 2, we saw how Paul emphasized that his ministry was effective because he was bold with the gospel. And of course, Paul's example of boldness that resulted in good fruit, should be a model for the Thessalonians to follow in these days of struggle. And so then we come to our text tonight. The short little passage in chapter 2, 13 to 16, wherein Paul returns to the theme of thanksgiving. He opened the letter with thanksgiving, and now he comes back to it. And he thanks God that the Thessalonians had submitted themselves to the word of God as the word of God, despite how they had endured hardships similar to the hardship that churches in Judea had faced. And so our main point 
It's our main point. Submission to the Word of God is evidence that God has called you to faith. Submission to the Word of God is evidence that God has called you to faith. We'll see it in three points. The similarity, the sin, and the solution. So first, the similarity. What I want to do in this first point is show you how Paul knows that the Thessalonians have received the Word of God in the proper way because their response to oppression resembled or is similar to that of the faithful Judean churches. First, though, before we get to that, I want to take a moment to connect this passage to what we thought about last week, the verses we examined. So, so do you remember, I know you do, do you remember what we said about verse 12? Paul, Paul wrote there that we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, so there we see that he stacked up these verbs of urging to, to compound and intensify the sense of admonition that they would walk in a manner worthy of God. And we saw that this calling that Paul mentions is an effectual calling wherein God gives a specific call to specific persons through the preaching of the gospel that they would believe in Christ and it happens. God brings about faith by his power. And in light of that calling that links us to Christ, we are first justified, declared righteous, and moreover, we are enabled to live more and more upright lives or to walk worthy of God. Imperfectly, but more and more. And so then we come to verse 13, where Paul said, we also thank God constantly for this. And so we wonder, what is this? And here, this refers back to that calling in verse 12. And and really, it it could be helpful just for clarity, not because there's something to fix, but for clarity, it could be helpful if we, if we move that phrase to the beginning of this sentence and summarize the verse sort of as, because of this calling, we also give thanks constantly that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And, and so... Because of of God's calling, Paul has reason to thank God that the Thessalonians had received the word of God. And and so do you see that, that here, this is a moment of Paul rejoicing for their conversion. So, so whereas previously, chapter 1, Paul gave thanks that the Thessalonians were enduring or continuing well as christians here he stops to give thanks that they had become christians in the first place and let's let's pause to give just a moment's reflection on that because there's there's a really straightforward application of this isn't there i mean it should be obvious 
that it's easy to lose the wonder at our salvation. It's easy to quit marveling that we belong to God. Is it old hat to you that God brought you from death to life? Is it bland news that the Holy Spirit shattered the darkness of your mind so that you could trust in Christ? Because it not be. I mean, just think about the young people here. I want to give you a specific exhortation. Is it not amazing that your parents bring you to church? And if you trust in the Lord, do you, have you ever stopped to think, God that he converted your parents. There are lots of Christians in this world who grew up with their parents not taking them to church or explaining the gospel to them. So thank God for that. And on the flip side, parents, if your children have made professions of faith, should we not often, often, often pause to thank God that he's converted the young people of this church. Because Paul the Apostle, who endured shipwrecks, poisonous snake bites, and miraculous free, uh, releases from prison, did not think the conversion of sinners to Christ so small a thing that he could not pause months later to thank God. For their conversion. Which brings us to the central issue of, of this point. After some of the Thessalonians had become Christians, they began to endure hardship at the hands of some unbelieving Thessalonians. And we see this in verse 14, if you look there. For when you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. I think there's an emphasis there. That it was their own countrymen. And, and that there, that point, is the surprise of this oppression. At, at least it should be from a human point of view, is it not? Because in the ideal world, are, are we not supposed to, to love our fellow citizens? And have some fraternity with those who are our countrymen and long for the best for them. And should that not have especially been the case in a place like Thessalonica, where at this time they were under the authority of the Roman Empire, this whole region. And so you might think that there could be some collegiality, some fraternity, some brotherly love among all of those under the Roman thumb and that they might stick together with their people. But it's not the case if anyone deviated from the views of comfortable society, which probably sounds a bit familiar. And, and again, here, we stop to remember that Paul wrote this letter as words of hope for the Thessalonians. He wasn't just pointing out that things were bad. But he was offering them encouragement. And so therefore he pointed out that the Judean Christians had also been persecuted by their fellow countrymen. And they had also endured through it with hope in Christ. 
And if we could swing back to that notion of effectual calling, Paul sees how says that we know the Judeans accepted the word of God, which is why they endured. And now he says to the Thessalonians, and you are enduring, which is the clearest marker that you too have accepted the word of God for what it is, a message from God. The the Thessalonians, as we see in this passage, had become imitators of the example of the apostles' holy living, but now we see they, the church as a whole was also becoming an imitator of other godly churches, the ones in Judea. And this is how Paul knows that the word, quote, is at work among you believers. And so the similarity here in this situation is that the Thessalonians remind Paul of other churches who proved to be called by God as they endured through trial. The similarity between the Judean and Thessalonian churches is that they were both attacked by their fellow countrymen but proved that they had truly accepted the word of God by persevering through hardship. And that brings us to our second point, the sin. And so in, in the last point, we drew attention to how Paul was giving thanks that the Thessalonians had been called into God's kingdom and had accepted the word of God. And this was evidence because they were holding firm to the faith through oppression like some of the Judean churches had done. And now what I want to do here is turn to draw out some, some deeper relevance from this text for us. And specifically in this point, I want to point out how it causes us to think sort of deeply about our sin. And you might think that the obvious sin of this passage is the persecution of Christians. In other words, the, the violent reaction against the believers. And of course, that is sin. And that is the most obvious thing here. But there is a deeper sin at work here, too, that manifests itself in these attacks on Christians. Because, as Paul pointed out, the oppression of Christians is is actually due to a rejection of the Word of God. That's the marked contrast between these people. In other words, an attack on Christians is because unbelievers have rebelled against God's authority. And, and we see this here in the clear contrast between the unbelievers marked by cruelty against the Christians... And the believers who, as verse 13 tells us, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so so the work of God in us is marked, is, is clear to other people in when we recognize the word of God. So the work of God manifests itself in us receiving the word of God. And in contrast, the sin person casts the scripture aside as if it is the mere words of men. 
It sounds to me so much like Romans 1, verses 18 to 21. Let me, let me read that passage to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says there, they they know who God is and what He has expected of His creatures, and they suppress it. They reject that message. And that passage paints a, a clear picture for us, doesn't it? Combined here with 1 Thessalonians, that the Word of God requires a response. God has spoken and has made Himself known. He has revealed Himself in creation, as Romans 1 says, so that we as the image of God know that He exists and requires righteousness. And in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son to to clarify the only way that we can be accepted in His sight is through the work of Jesus Christ if we would trust in Him. And He has inspired His Scripture to specify and preserve the contours of that Gospel message for us over the millennia. And the only responses open to us to that message are submission and rebellion. Those are the only two options. And and isn't that issue the crux of even the Christian life? Is this not the fine point of sanctification right here? God has spoken, and we must decide if we will bow to His authority or if we will raise our fists in treachery. The world is convinced that their feelings are a better guide to God than the testimony of Scripture. The words that come from God. And they ask how we can be sure that the Scriptures are true, and yet they assume their feelings have to be true. That's what we're told every day, I feel. And the first thing we should ask is, how the world can trust ideas that originate from themselves more than they can trust words that come from an outside source and are delivered in this book, Scripture. I mean, it's really the worst form of circular reasoning, I think, that exists. I know because I feel. I know because I feel. But I feel is not an argument. And should certainly not trust God has said. I can't overstate the importance of this point because it, it really has to do with that issue of authority. Are we willing to submit to God and what He has said, what He has revealed to us is the truth? Or are we more committed to ourselves 
instead of the Lord. So much so that we would discard the words of the Bible when they don't match what we wish were true. Not what is true, but what we wish were true. Do we accept that God is in charge of the world? Or are we going to pretend that our fantasies actually shape reality? And this, in other words, is is about nothing less than our understanding of everything. Do you see how big that is? And think about how this relates, even to what we heard this morning, that as Isaiah comes into God's throne room, he's confronted with this God and it demands response. And are we not invited every week here into God's throne room where he promises us his presence and that demands response when we are confronted with the magnificent presence of God. Will we submit or will we rebel? Because this this applies to unbelievers, obviously, right? In their rejection of God. And, And the reason they react so viscerally to the gospel the reason is because they know they need it. Have you thought of it like that? They hate to admit their alienation from God, though. So I'll oppose the message and the messenger. I mean, we, we saw this last year in Ireland with the abortion referendum. The, the people who were in favor of abortion won the vote... And were furious and still lashed out at Christians. It's because it's not about getting what they want. It's hating the message and the people who stand for it. And yet, on the other side, does it not apply to Christians as well? Because we can get so good, so good. At explaining away our sins, can't we? I, it's the easiest thing to do. It's fine this time. It'll be okay. Oh, this isn't that bad. And further, can't we so easily pretend like... I mean, take note of this in particular because it is pervasive. Can't we pretend like we can find our way to God without direction from the Scripture? As if the scripture is not the only rule given to us so that we might know how to glorify and enjoy God. And we hear Christians say things like, suppose Christians say things like, I know the scripture says it's a necessity to go to church and I should be there. But I just know, I feel it in my heart. I meet with God just as well when I walk in the woods. Even if, even if it's not that extreme. Do we not all still have our ways of pushing aside God's commands? I mean, because it, at stake here is that submission to God takes effort, even for renewed people. It takes conscious subjection to the Word of God as He has revealed to us in Scripture. And on the flip side... The sin here in this passage, the sin is rejecting God in His Word and attacking people who stand for Him. Which brings us to our third point. 
the solution. So, in the first point, we noted that Paul, uh, we noted Paul's thankfulness that the Thessalonians had received the word of God as the word of God, like the Judeans, despite the hostility of their neighbors. And in the second point, we considered how the underlying sin behind this hostility towards the Thessalonian Christians was rebellion against God and how there are, of course, modern parallels to that, both outside the church and among those who call themselves Christians. That was the bad news. And at this point, we'll look at the answer to that rebellion, the good news. So there are two aspects to this solution. So first, we're going we're to think briefly about the consolation for the harm of rebellion. And then secondly, the transformation of the heart of rebellion. So first, consolation for the harm of rebellion. So as Paul commented here on, on how... The Jews treated Judean Christians. He launches into this list of their offenses in verses 14 to 16. They killed Jesus, the Son of God. And their ancestors had killed the prophets. And they persecuted the apostles when we came to them. And they displeased God. And now this one is fascinating. And they oppose all mankind. Is that not, is that not interesting? They oppose all mankind. All humanity. They do so, and this is, this is particularly insightful. They oppose all humanity by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. What, I mean, what a contrast to, to modern day views of, of Christians as, as closed minded and sectarian people, isn't it? I, I mean, Paul thought on the contrary. That people who tried to silence the gospel hate the human race. And that's, I mean, that's true. When you think about, I mean, give, give a second's pause to that. Those who do not want and who will oppose the broad and bold proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, they want everyone to go to hell implicitly. It's an opposition to humanity. And yet, their vitriol is clear in how they take action against believers. So, Paul's consolation for this harm, for this rebellion, is to remind the Thessalonians that these actions against Christians are, in fact, storing up God's wrath. Those who remain stalwart in their rebellion are simply stacking up experiences of God's wrath. And so no wonder, no wonder they so hate people who take joy from God's mercies. The the phrase there at the end of verse 16, at last, is likely, but as your ESV footnote uh, notes, is likely better translated, in fullness. And so Paul's point is that although it may seem as if these enemies have the upper hand as they attack the church, in reality, God's wrath is resting in fullness 
on them. And that is not the upper hand. That's Paul's consolation. That the Thessalonians are not under God's wrath like these rebels are. And they should remember it. We'll bring them hope. And then we think now about the transformation of the heart of rebellion. So, you know, although the, the Thessalonians needed comfort as their neighbors rebelled against them, and so Paul reminded them of the wrath that was upon their enemies, we need something more. Don't, not something else, but something more than that, don't we? We need a cure for our rebellion. We don't just need consolation that someone else is rebelling against us. We need the cure for our own. And so how do we deal with the fact that we are rebels against God? And you may have seen the answer in our text. Paul, Paul mentions here how the Jews in rebellion against God killed Jesus. But, but Jesus was not a passive victim of murderous hearts. He, he came to earth to die at rebellious hands so that he could cure rebellious hearts. He, he died because of rebellion so that he could forgive rebellion. And although we are all owed God's wrath for our violations of God's law and our rebellion against Him. Jesus died to wash that away. How beautiful. He forgives us. And if you have not had faith in Him, would you not do that now? Is is now not the moment for that. Even if, even if you are boiling with rebellion and you feel rebellious, I don't want this, I don't like it. If you feel the strings of your heart pulled to trust in Christ, would you not do it? Because even if you still feel rebellious, every person that Jesus Christ bought at the cross is a fixer-upper. And Jesus intends, when he moves in, to do a full renovation. So would you not come to him now? And for those of you who do trust in Christ, is he not still remodeling? There's still things to do. And so it is a sweeting that we can still go to, not just for conversion, but for endurance. We can go to Him knowing that He died to save us and He bought new hearts for us. So let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for the gift of Your Son that You sent Him into this world to die, that He took upon the curse of our unrighteousness, of our lawlessness. And bearing that curse, He climbed the cross 
so that it might be nailed to that cross and put away from us. We rejoice at that. And we pray you would give us deeper trust in that so that as we come to trust more deeply in Christ, we might be fueled to talk about Him more. Help us to appreciate that He has brought us to faith by the work of His Spirit, Your Spirit, and that the triune God has worked our salvation top to bottom and will equip us for every hardship we see and face and endure in this world and will see us home. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And we rejoice at that truth. And we pray you would make it reality in our lives, that you would do that first work in, a, in some of us now and make Christians and that you would continue that good work on to completion in the rest of us, preparing us, equipping us, helping us as we seek to serve you in this world. No matter what rebellion out there we face, no matter what hardship, fill us with joy in Christ Jesus that we might be salt and light for your gospel. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.